Good evening, welcome to Golden Beer Talks. We have a little space up here. If someone is still needing to sit, there's a seat right here. If you have a meal and you would like to sit. Otherwise, we're gonna get started. Welcome, 2019 Golden Beer Talks. Most Woo! awesome. Indeed. Thank you for coming. Thank you for opening your year with us. Also, thank you to our friends here at the Windy Saddle for hosting us and treating us so well and feeding us so well. Thank you also to goldentoday.com for keeping us all well informed about our beloved community. If you have not lately been to the goldentoday.com website, it is recommended. Thank you as well to Greg Reed. He's a local musician who lends us these speakers and this microphone and makes us sound a lot better than we would and used to <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. <laughs> we are going to open with a lovely representative from our guest tap brewery tonight, which is Factotum Brewing. And please help me welcome Laura. Can I take this off? Yeah. Okay. There we go. This looks like a really fun group of people. <laughs> I've been here for an hour just observing, um, so I, I think I might be joining you guys sometime in the future because uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm also here to break all the stereotypes. So um, I'm drinking wine. I drink wine in the evenings. I drink a lot of beer uh, during the day. Uh, I also own a brewery and I don't have a beard, so um, that's uh, something that's very unique about me and my brother. My brother and I are the co-owners at Factotum Brew House. Um, thank you so much for having us. We're super psyched uh, to come here and talk a little bit about what we do in our beers. So um, we are just shy of four years. Our four-year anniversary is actually coming up. We're going to have a big party on February 16th. So if you are around, um, I'll let you know that the year we opened, we had sideways snow. And the last three years for our anniversary party, I've been wearing a tank top and flip-flops. So I think it should be another uh, good seasonable weekend. We'll see. We'll see. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the brewery, then I'll talk specifically about the two beers that we brought. Um, definitely let me know if you have questions after I'm done. I'm going to hand out some business cards and also some buy one, get one cards uh, at each of the tables. So I think I have enough. I brought a huge stack, um, but that way you guys can come visit us and try the beer as well in the tap room. So Factotum Brew House. Factotum, if you don't know, is an older English word. It's not used very often. It's a noun and actually means jack of all trades. Um, my brother is more of that English communications person. I'm all math and science. I'm a physics teacher as well. Uh, daylight is physics teacher, then brewery owner, 
on all the other spare hours of my week. So, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, our concept is a little bit different. Right now, we don't know of any other brewery that does exactly what we do and not even entirely that close to what we do. Um, our concept is that we invite guest brewers um, to come in and guest brew with my brother, who's our head brewer. So we both have a strong background in education, um, so it's kind of like going to brewing school. Now, a lot of breweries have had guest brewers uh, that might be you know, somewhat famous people. Maybe the mayor will come and guest brew a beer at your brewery or whatnot. Our guest brewers are anybody. So you, you know, your niece, okay, your neighbor. Um, What's really cool about it is, though, is that you come to us with an idea for a beer, and then we kind of make that a reality. So my brother takes your ideas, turns it into a recipe. On brew day, you get to come in and brew with him. You get to do as little or as much of the brewing that you like. Remember that brewing is 90% cleaning, okay? Uh, most of our guest brewers do the 10%, the fun part and then they're out, um, and then my brother's there cleaning. But <laughs> we've had a couple of guest brewers that said, hey, we want to do the whole thing. Um, common question is, you know, how do we choose? Uh, we don't really choose. Um, we have had people come in that, yeah, they want to open a brewery. In fact, one of our first set of guest brewers, they just opened a brewery in Parker called Welcome Home Brewery. Um, so that was kind of cool, but most of our, our guest brewers are people who might have dabbled in home brewing or have just said, hey, this is a really cool idea and I want to do this experience. So they come in, they brew the beer. Um, still at the end of the day, it's our recipe, right? We're going to make sure that it tastes good because it's our name behind that. And then that beer goes on tap. So when you're at the office on Friday and everybody says, hey, where are we going for happy hour? You say, hey, we're going to Factotum and we're going to drink my beer. Or maybe you're having a big birthday party and you come and have your birthday party at Factotum and all of your friends and family get to drink your beer. Um, so that's kind of our concept and it's been a lot of fun. Um, the shortest queue we've had for guest brewing has been six months. Um, it has stretched out to about 12 months at certain times. I'd have to take a look and see where it is right now, but I would say it's probably right around that six to eight month mark, but it's really fun. The other thing that's really unique about us is we recently um, just joined Taproom Space with Lady Justice Brewing. Uh, Lady Justice Brewing was only doing a, a bottling once a month. Uh, their concept is that anything above profit um, goes to nonprofits that empower women. Okay, uh, Lady Justice is owned by three women uh, who met while doing some AmeriCorps work. Two of them are lawyers, um, another one is a teacher, and they were just in a little brewing space. They thought they were going to get a taproom space, um, and as you all know about rent in this area, <laughs> uh, they were kind of squeezed out, and so we actually now share a taproom with Lady Justice, so if you come visit us, you will also get to visit Lady Justice. Uh, right now, they have two taps on. They're going to work their way up to three taps eventually. So um, just a really cool thing. Um, it's awesome to have three additional owners as well, um, kind of helping, you know, grease the wheels and make things move. So, yeah, a lot going on. 
<laughs> and my brother gets to work with four women, so it's great. <laughs> um, the two beers we brought, um, so as you might guess, we have a highly rotating list. Because of that, we also have a few flagships. So the Colorado IPA is one of our flagships. We will be adding a fourth flagship here soon for our fourth anniversary party. Uh, Colorado IPA was flagship number two. A Colorado IPA was an idea that we actually quote unquote stole with permission from New Terrain Brewing here um, in Golden. And it is a mishmash of an East Coast IPA and a West Coast IPA. So we like to call it a very well balanced IPA. Uh, so those of you that are drinking it, um, you will get some of that floralness from the East Coast, uh, a little bit of snap from a West Coast style. Um, our Colorado IPA has seven different hops in it. If you take a look on the website, you'll see that all the hop names have something to do with the state of Colorado. For example, we have Centennial hops in there, El Dorado hops, um, and so forth and so forth. Um, we named our Colorado IPA Glorietta. Uh, Glorietta was the last battle that the state of Colorado had with the state of Texas and it's where we kicked Texas out of Colorado for good. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm wearing a shirt, and it says messing with Texas since 1862. So that is um, the little bit of story behind our Glorietta. <laughs> um, the other beer that we brought is a Brew Amber. That is a guest brew, um, so we wanted to kind of showcase you know, how that can also turn out. Um, this particular person, he owns a business in our neighborhood, in the Sunnyside neighborhood, and just said, hey, these brew beers are our thing. I want to do a twist with an amber. And we said, hey, we can do that. Okay, so those of you that are drinking that, at the very end, you're going to get that real dry kind of taste in your mouth, just like a brute uh, champagne. Um, we did not use a champagne yeast in this, although that's commonly um, done. For these beers, uh, but we just had a yeast that was a fast-working yeast and kind of got rid of all of its sugar to give that real dry, kind of snappy taste at the end. Other than that, it's just a, it's your kind of solid amber beer. So I think that's all I have for you, unless there are any quick questions or... Where are we located? Good question. Um, the very general answer is kind of where I-25 and I-70 crisscross. Uh, more specific, we are in the Sunnyside neighborhood, which is just north of the Lower Highlands neighborhood at 38th and La Pan. The other uh, landmark that a lot of people know is we are literally across the street from Chubby's Burritos, which has been around probably longer than I've been alive. So, <laughs> anything else? All right. Yeah. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, Tom Cassaval, who's currently serving as the bouncer over there near the, near the door. Um, Tom has had a long and distinguished career at the USGS studying volcanoes, volcanic eruptions, volcanic rocks, ore deposits associated with volcanic rocks, and he's published extensively on, on these topics. He's worked as a geologist within the USGS Volcano Hazards Program and has had the good fortune to be stationed at some of our permanent volcano observatories, including Hawaii and in the Cascades and in Alaska. 
And in terms of volcanoes, I, I guess Tom may be um, most widely known for his contributions to understanding volcanic hazards and aviation safety, looking at eruptions that eject vast amounts of ash and gas high into the atmosphere uh, where they can contaminate air traffic corridors. And this work started with the Mount St. Helens eruption in 1980, and then the 1989-1990 Mount Redoubt uh, eruption in Alaska and Mount Pinatubo in, in 1991. Um, Tom has also served some important management roles within the USGS, uh, taking stints as acting director of the US Geological Survey, as well as positions as the deputy director and regional director. Tom retired in 2008, and he continues his association with the USGS in an, in an emeritus status. Tom's an avid bicyclist, and he's routinely um, played a key part in a group of USGS scientists who each summer participate in Ride the Rockies and contribute science and geological information uh, to the riders that, uh, that are part of the tour. Um, tonight, Tom is going to talk to us about his current passion and interest, which is geoheritage, which I might define as areas that have geologic features which, with significant scientific educational, cultural, or aesthetic value. And let me give, let me give you a, a quick example of, of, of what that sort of means. You're aware that we protect uh, our nation's scenic wonders, uh, Rocky Mountain National Park, Black Canyon of the Gunnison, and so forth. And we also protect important cultural and historical sites. Think of Chaco Canyon, or Mesa Verde, or Independence Hall. But imagine... Uh, sort of a mixture of those two. Think of a region where the geologic features are of such importance that they influence and are intimately tied to the human activities and human culture that grows up in, in that region. That's an example, and, and not, not, that's just a part of what geoheritage is, but it's this mixture of, of the geologic setting and the human history. Well, Tom is currently the lead of the U.S. Geoheritage and Geoparks Advisory Group, which is under the auspices of the United States National Academy of Sciences. And Tom's focus is on geologic heritage with emphasis on protected volcanic landscapes. And he'll give us some of that tonight. So here's Tom. Thank you very much, Don. In a sense, you gave my talk. So... Those of you who want to hurry home to hear the president in about six minutes, you're, you're, more, you're more than welcome. I don't think he's going to be talking about geoheritage tonight. But um, So first of all, thank you so much for the invitation to come to this uh, Golden Beer Talk or Golden Beer Seminars. I want to say I've given talks in a lot of places in the world, and, and this is one of the most unique ones that I've ever had the chance to see. And uh, so before we start, I want to ask if uh, the folks in the back, Don and others, can you guys hear us okay? You're good? Okay. So, uh, and typically I have a clicker because I usually use a lot of slides. So my clicker lady tonight is going to be Karen. Uh, and so if, uh, is that in focus, Jim, for you guys? Is, is there a way to, it looks, it looks... If somebody could just... Oh, it's out of focus. There you go. Okay. So, number one. Uh, Karen? Good. 
Okay, uh, Don's already given you the official definition of geoheritage. Uh, the Geological Society of America is the leading uh, professional society for Earth scientists, uh, really in North America. It's mainly the United States, but about 40% of its membership is from outside the United States. And the GSA, as we call it, is headquartered in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, since uh, about 2004, they have had a, what they call a position statement about geoheritage. And this is the definition. Uh, it's a, and, and, I, may, I may move around a lot, so don't let me trip over you. <laughs> Good. But it's a, it's a descriptive term that applies to sites or areas of geologic features with significant aesthetic, cultural, or aesthetic value. Next. Um, there's uh, two colleagues up at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Uh, Lon Abbott is on the faculty at the University of Colorado in the Earth Sciences Department. And his wife, Terry Cook, is a member of the U.S. Advisory Group on Geoheritage. And Terry's really the brains behind the, the Cook-Abbott books. If you've ever seen books about the Grand Canyon underfoot or the Front Range geology underfoot, they're, they're terrific. And they've written a number of articles about geoheritage. If you Google them, you're going to come up. And they've got a little bit more of, a, of an explanation or a definition. But next. Um, I, th I want to tell you that geoheritage is really personal. And those of you in the audience tonight, how many of you are earth scientists or geologists by training? So it looks like it's a distinct minority. I would, I, I would say it's about 11.7% uh, of you are, are, are earth scientists. But for every one of you, if you're a resident of the state of Colorado, geology is intrinsic to everything we think, do, see, and celebrate here in the state. And that's the theme of my talk tonight, that really geoheritage is, is personal. And so for me, um, these are four thematic pieces that I'll talk about. Uh, this first one up here is, is one, of the, one of the major eruptions. Don mentioned Mount St. Helens. I was really fortunate in 1980 as a young earth scientist with USGS to be able to work at the uh, eruption of Mount St. Helens beginning in March of 1980. We're coming up on the 39th anniversary of the eruption. And uh, those of you living in Denver who woke up on the morning of May 19th and went out in 1980 and saw the dust layer on the windscreen in your car, that was ashfall from Mount St. Helens. So uh, even here in Colorado, we're touched uh, by modern volcanic activity. Uh, this, this material up here, um, for a number of years I worked in southwest Colorado as a production geologist at the Sunnyside Mine out of Silverton, Colorado. And one of the key, it's a gold mine, gold, silver, lead, zinc, copper. Um, but one of the key minerals that are found there is the mineral called rhodochrosite. Rhodochrosite's a manganese carbonate, and it's the state mineral. And uh, for us who worked underground, it was always a fantastic experience when we would be in a vein system and find a vug. A vug is an opening or a cavity in a vein. And we would see these beautiful euhedral or well-formed crystals of rhodochrosite. So again, for me, this is, this is personal. This rock down here, it's a rock from the San Juan volcanic area. It's, it's not very sexy to you, but to me, I think it's a wonderful rock because you can see large crystals and then you can see a very fine gray or brownish, what we call fine-grained ground mass. So we've got two different... Uh, geological events portrayed in this rock. One was that this rock, first of all, it originated in a volcanic setting. 
This magma, which is the material that produces lava that comes out of a volcano, this magma sat at depth for a long time, and these large crystals were able to form. They formed very slowly. And had this rock never erupted, we would have material like uh, the Pikes Peak granite, or we would have a Yosemite-type granitic rock. But this rock was erupted in a sudden major explosive eruption, and the material in the ground mass was chilled or quenched or cooled very quickly. So if, if you're a six-year-old, I can tell you the story about this rock, and that six-year-old will remember that this rock has two different uh, times in its formation. One was the crystals, and one was the fine-grained ground mass. And so for me, I, 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 porphyr, we call this a porphyry or a porphyritic rock. And so I'm kind of a fan of porphyritic rocks, just so you know. I'll put it out on the table and you can deal with it. And then geologically, the area that I'm most familiar with in the state is in southwest Colorado. And if you're up in Ridgeway or near Dallas Divide and you look to the south, this is the Mount Sneffels front. And yes, it's a beautiful glaciated landscape, but geologically, it's made up, when you look closely, it's made up of a lot of fine layers that aren't sediments, these are volcanic rock layers. And Don Sweetkind and my colleagues at the USGS, we've actually done a lot of mapping in this area and studying the age and, of these formations in terms of how they form. So these, these features are very important to me. And as I get ready to move on, I don't have any grandchildren, but in, in terms of what's important to me, in terms of the geologic heritage of Colorado, these are features that sort of tell the story, particularly these three down here. And then as Don said, most of my career has been spent working on volcanic rocks, so um, I want to talk about volcanoes. Okay, what are the benefits of geologic heritage? This is a question that we're asked a lot. Why should we care, why should you in this audience care about geologic heritage? And there's a number of benefits that, are, that, that we can demonstrate. We'll talk about economic benefits, when you designate an area as a park or as a monument, and that designation brings additional visitation to an area, there are, there are tourism values, there are jobs, there's visitor support, and then there's the sustainable development of those resources um, that are protected in this landscape. Uh, a second point is it improves your science literacy. If you get nothing out of the talk tonight, you will learn about why Golden is such a cool place, what its location is in terms of a protected landscape, the Lariat Loop, and what other designations or what other identifiers scientists here in the Denver Basin are thinking about when they talk about the area, this front range area where we are. So science literacy is super important. At a time when the Denver Post can put on page two that there's gonna be a meeting of the Flat Earth Society that to me, that's a real travesty to think that the people of the state of Colorado aren't sufficiently intelligent to understand, you know what, folks, there is no such thing as a flat earth. And it's a fallacy. So improve your science literacy. Improve your health and well-being. Getting out on these landscapes means you've got to walk, ski, hike, bicycle. You've got to get your butt moving, and that's going to improve and lead to improved health. And enhancement of earth science concepts and ideas, this is... This is my piece on the flat earth. Um, now, this gentleman is no longer the Secretary of the Interior. <clears throat> but each year, the Department of the Interior has to 
uh, prepare a report for Congress that demonstrates what are the value of having a national park system. And in this particular case, this was two years ago now, just after uh, Secretary Zinke came aboard, but um, $35 billion added to the U.S. economy in 2016 because of visitation to uh, parks and monuments in the National Park Service system. Um, the flip side of that is that we have 3,600 counties here in the United States. 3,600 counties. Jefferson County, where we live and where we are right now, is one of them. Approximately 80% of the counties in the United States are below the poverty line. This is a silent crisis. It's very self Castillo County. Go down to uh, Baca. Uh, many of the three counties in the state of Colorado, the average uh, living wage is below the poverty level. And so the National Association of Counties, called NACO, uh, NACO put out a report on poverty in rural Well, rural counties happen to be places where in the past we've had mineral extraction, we've had mining, we've had logging, we've had intensive ranch. One, two, three. I'll try this. So keep in mind as you drive around the spectacular scenery of the western slope or the plains and the eastern slope or the western United States or the eastern United States that a lot of those rural counties that the interstate highway systems go through, those counties are in economic crisis. They've got spectacular scenery. They've, they've had in the past resource communities. And these are really the focus of the geoheritage efforts. That we're, that we're trying to develop here in the United States. Next, please. Um, a few, uh, last year, there was a front page article in the Denver Post, this concept of mining for tourists. Many of you know where Idaho Springs is. You know where the Argo Tunnel is. It's an old gold mine up in Idaho Springs. And uh, this is the, the owners of the, the Argo Tunnel. They're, they're tumbling to the idea that, look, geologic heritage is a valuable resource that we can use today to bring tourist visitation to Idaho Springs and also educate the people that have that experience. Next, please. Um, the health and uh, improved health and well-being. This is at Bandelier National Monument in northern New Mexico. And I'll tell you the story of this picture. I was walking through Bandelier about three years ago, and uh, I, was, I, I just wanted to capture the joy that these three young kids were having as I kind of followed them and their parents were with me and or behind me actually, and I saw them scramble up here. And uh, so I said, hey, is it okay if I take your picture of your kids? And he said, no entendemos, que estas hablando? And I said, in Spanish, I said, can I take a photograph of your children? Well, this was a family from Madrid, Spain. These were three young, their three young children who were enjoying and getting out and um, improving their health and well-being by enjoying the Bandelier National Monument. And it probably won't come as a surprise to you that more than 50% of the visitation at National Park Service monuments and parks 
It's from outside the United States. Mount St. Helens National Volcanic Monument, north of Portland, Oregon, has close to 80% foreign visitation. A lot of those come from the, from the Asian Pacific uh, Rim, the Japanese and the Chinese. So a lot of people are enjoying uh, a the, the U.S. Um, geologic heritage. In many cases, it's simply not us. So geoheritage in the United States, this is a little bit of historical background. It's historically been linked to the national park system, which really is the gold standard for geological heritage at a global scale. And preservation of geologic features were really the reasons in the organic founding acts for many of those parks and monuments. The reason they're there is because of their geologic features. And conservation of our heritage through parks and monuments is, is, and other protected landscape designations. We've got a lot in this country that other countries around the world aren't so uh, um, um, fortunate with. The first real major statement about geologic heritage in a legal sense was the Yosemite Grant of 1862. This was during the Civil War. President Lincoln established the Yosemite Grant. Congress actually established it. And it's the first instance of parkland being set aside by the federal government given to the state of California for preservation and public use. Yosemite National Park in 1872, I think you're all aware, this is the world's first national park. It was established by Congress in 1872, and it's, uh, we'll get back to it as a World Heritage Site as well. Devil's Tower was established under the Antiquities Act of 1906. Those of you who have been following the Bears Ears controversy in southeast Utah, the, um, the Escalante um, uh, monument in, uh, also in Utah, and the fact that those were designated in part using the power of the Antiquities Act. You also need to be aware that the current administration is challenging the use of the Antiquities Act and how it's been proposed. Theodore Roosevelt was the one who established the Antiquities Act, and many of our key national parks and monuments were established, for example, Devil's Tower National Monument. If you look at a map, you go online, you can download the National Atlas. This is a product of the U.S. Geological Survey. And it shows you, if you look here, you can't see it, but the point is there's a number of different colored geographic designations or, or footprints on this map. And it shows you the federal lands and Indian reservations in the United States, including both Alaska and the state of Hawaii. And you can see that particularly west of the Mississippi, um, we've got a lot of federal lands designated as national parks, Bureau of Land Management managed lands, Bureau of Reclamation managed lands, and U.S. Forest Service. So you get an idea that a lot of the, these lands are protected for one value or other. But many of them are also uh, used for what we call multiple use. So there's active mining, there's active logging, there's active ranching, there's active grazing, etc. on these federal lands. And these federal lands belong to all of us. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise, we're the owners of our federal lands. And keep that in mind when people start to threaten our federal lands. Okay, thank you. And next. The public land agencies, the, the, the key public land agencies at the federal level, you've probably seen these logos. Um, this is a National Park Service symbol, the Forest Service and the Department of Agriculture, Fish and Wildlife Service, and Bureau of, Reclamation, uh, Bureau of Land Management. Now, as a volcano guy, I've got to tell you, um, you see this mountain here. This is an idealized view of Mount Rainier, an active volcano near Seattle. 
Uh, behind the Fish and Wildlife Service, this is Mount uh, Shishaldin in the state of Alaska. And you see this one here, an idealized view. This is Mount Shasta in Northern California on the Bureau. So volcanoes are really key, are really important. This is, this is a plug for volcano studies, of course. And I don't know what's happened to the Forest Service yet. We have to work with them. Next, please. Um, let's talk about your National Park Service. Next. There are, um, you can see again on this map, you can go and download it, or you can go to a Park Service site when they open after the shutdown. And you can get this map, and the map will show you the location of the 418 national parks and monuments, of which we have a number of really cool ones here in Colorado that we're going to loop back to. Next. Um, there's all kinds of designations from Staten Island to um, Hawaii Volcanoes National Park to, yeah, there's lots of them. Next. Um, included in, in the National Park Service, if you go to their website, they do have an excellent um, geological resources website. And just so you know, the geological resources division of the National Park Service is headquartered here in Lakewood, Colorado, in Jefferson County. It's at the corner of uh, Wadsworth and Hamden. And uh, they have about 20 geologists working in the National Park Service. And they have some remarkable online resources. And I'm sorry that none of my Park Service colleagues are here tonight. Um, but they're the ones that have supplied a lot of this material. But one of the things we're doing, in addition to those 418 sites that the Park Service manages, um, we have what we call an unofficial register of other important geoheritage sites. It's organized by state. You can go to the website, find this site, go to Colorado, and you can see here in the state of Colorado, we do have a number of sites that are under private land ownership, most of them, where the owners have agreed to uh, allow conservation or protection of that, of, of that particular feature. And so they appear in this unofficial register. Um, other things that the Park Service organizes is that in mid-October uh, each year, we have National Fossil Day. And there's only two geological environments that are protected by federal regulation. One, are, one is the National Fossil Act, which means that you cannot go onto our public lands and extract Tyrannosaurus rex. That's against the law. You can go on private land and do it. You can go on tribal lands and get a license to do it. But you can't do that on public lands. And the other uh, important legal designation is called the Cave and Karst Act. And caves and karst refer to limestone geology, which is a very important source of groundwater in many parts of the country. And so it's important to manage and curate and conserve the cave and karst lands because that's where our drinking water comes from. And if you care about clean drinking water, you care about cave and cars. So those are the two federal laws. They're the only two federal laws that protect any of the things we're going to be talking about. Next, please. Um, we also have a National Natural Landmarks Program. <clears throat> Again, I need one of those uh, beers. I'm drinking tonight the, uh, the, amber, the Amber Ale. It's a wonderful beer. I hope you've all had a chance to taste it. So this is another program where willing landowners can participate and have the, uh, the earth science or the geology resource on their properties um, noted, maintained, and advice on curation. Next, please. 
But we also have a lot of other designations that are managed by the National Park Service. We've got historical parks and monuments, national parks. We've also got battlefields, preserves, recreation areas, seashores, not here in Colorado, of course, parkways, lake shores, reserves, geologic trails, and national heritage areas. Um, talk about the, the, some of the other uh, uh, federal managers in a, for a few seconds. The U.S. Forest Service, uh, they have the national forests, of course. Many of these national forests have superlative geological features. Um, we have a number of wilderness areas, but the, the Forest Service also manages two national monuments. And these are both volcanic national monuments. One is Mount St. Helens National Volcanic Monument. How many of you have had a chance to visit Mount St. Helens, to go up on Johnston Ridge? Boy, that looks like about 16.3%. The rest of you got to get out there. You got to see Mount St. Helens. It's really a unique wonder of the world. And then we also have Newberry Crater near Bend, Oregon National Volcanic Monument. Some spectacular, two large volcanic calderas. So these are systems and I'm not trying to push volcanic features, mind you, but I, I just, I, it just happens to be what we've chosen next. Um, there's a unique site in northern New Mexico managed by the Bureau of Land Management and also the Coche de Pueblo, and it's called Cusuque Cuete, or Tent Rocks National Monument. And as you can see here, these are six to seven million-year-old volcanic tufts that came out of the Valle Grande caldera, and this is a pretty unique partnership between a tribal, uh, a tribal entity and a federal entity. Next, please. So geologic heritage in the United States, um, in much of the world, the premier designations for protecting world-class geologic landscapes are in the UNESCO World Heritage and Global Geoparks programs. Um, there's more than 200 World Heritage natural areas. Not all of them are geologic, but a lot of them are. We have 140 global geoparks globally. So this is, this is your second lesson for tonight, is to understand a little bit better um, about these two important UNESCO programs. In the United States, we have 23 World Heritage Sites, including that are inscribed primarily for geology. Um, uh, seven, eight days ago, the United States withdrew from UNESCO. Um, this, was, uh, this was over a dispute related to admission of uh, Palestinian-related organizations into the world body. And the United States, not under this administration, but going back to the 1990s, um, has a statement in law that says that any United Nations organization that recognizes a Palestinian entity, the U.S. will withhold funding. So since October of 2011, when Palestine was admitted to observer status at UNESCO, the United States has withdrawn and withheld our funding. And on December 31st of last year, eight days ago, um, under President Trump, we formally withdrew from UNESCO. Because of the shutdown, you've probably not heard anything at all about the U.S. withdrawing from UNESCO, which is a true tragedy. It, 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 it passed away without a whimper. NPR, Associated Press, both did very short stories. They were factually incorrect. They didn't have dates right. They didn't have reasons right. And that's all. So we as Americans have let one of, and we were one of the founding members of UNESCO, we let one of our greatest contributions to global peace 
And UNESCO stands for Education, Science, and Culture. It's the primary location in the United Nations where women's issues are addressed. Science issues, education issues, cultural issues. So if you care, write to Bennett, write to Gardner, write to somebody, make a stink. We haven't made a stink. We're out of UNESCO. So U.S. participation in the World Heritage Program, however, has not been affected because we participate in the World Heritage Program through the World Heritage Convention, passed in 1972, written by the United States, Russell Train, and we were the first signature to the World Heritage Convention. It was approved by Congress, so our World Heritage sites uh, will continue to have support. If the President wants to get us out of the World Heritage Program, it will require an act of Congress, or maybe tonight some executive statement saying we're going to get out. <laughs> However, the UNESCO Global Geopark uh, program is not uh, protected by convention. And because we have now withdrawn from UNESCO, uh, U.S. communities, those 80% of the 3,600 uh, 3, counties around the United States no longer have access to the UNESCO Global Geopark program. Next, please. So we do have a number of World Heritage Sites in the States to be, and, and I'm sorry for sounding a little bit political, but this looks like a pretty important audience. And since only 11% of you are not are, are, are earth scientists and the rest of you are um, other things, we, we, we can discuss this. So here in the United States, the first one I put up, this is very typical. If you go to a World Heritage Site anywhere in the world, you'll see this plaque. This is the designating plaque for the World Heritage Committee from UNESCO, identifying, in this case, Hawaii Volcanoes National Park as a World Heritage Site. Another, other examples, Great Smoky Mountain National Park. This is, a, this is one of our most visited parks. We have about 16 million visitors who go here each year. It's close to the eastern seaboard, to the, to the nation's capital. It's still open because the, the, uh, the, the Skyline Parkway goes through here and people have to drive on a federal highway. Next. Carlsbad Na Caverns in uh, New Mexico. Next. Grand Canyon National Park, one of, the, one of the crown jewels. And what you're seeing here, is th these aren't just crown jewels for the United States, but crown jewels for humanity. And that's why they're the best of the best. That's why they're called World Heritage. Next. Uh, this is the Kulani Wrangell St. Elias Glacier. Um, it happens to also be a great volcanic feature. Most people, when they go there, they look at the spectacular glaciers and they're not aware of those two historically active volcanoes. Next. Mesa Verde National Park, this is a winter, winterscape. Mesa Verde is not listed as a natural site. It's not there for the geology. It's there for what we call cultural values. And um, it's, again, a spectacular site. For Colorado, it's our only world heritage site. We need to cherish it. It happens to be closed right now. It was on the website this afternoon. They had been able to drive in, but it's, it's closed right now due to the shutdown. Next, please. So... To address some of these issues, uh, in the rest of the world, many, many countries around the world, particularly in Europe, particularly in Asia, have pursued the concept of geologic heritage because they don't have the National Park Service system like we have in the United States. They don't have the, the major programs to protect um, geological landscapes. So they have, they have tracked very closely to the UNESCO Global Geopark Program and they've established commissions or advisory groups or forums on uh, geoheritage and geoparks. 
Here in the United States, we've established one in, uh, next please, in 2016 as a program development activity of the U.S. National Committee for the International Union of Geological Sciences, sorry for the legalese, but um, this is nested, the, the, the way international science is organized, we have these major science unions that try to coordinate and communicate amongst science organizations in different countries. So there is a major science union for the earth sciences called the IUGS. Here in the United States, every, every country has a national committee that belongs to IUGS, and ours here in the United States is operating under the umbrella of the National Academy of Sciences. So in February of 2016, we established the U.S. Advisory Group on Geoheritage and Geoparks. Next, please. Um, we have a website. Everybody's got a website, but um, you can go to this if you want to learn more. Um, I happen to be the chair right now of the U.S. Advisory Group on Geoheritage and Geoparks, and that's why I'm doing a lot of these kinds of presentations. Next, please. The goals of the advisory group are to work with states and interested communities to promote and develop geoheritage projects and communicate and educate American communities about the Global Geopark Program. Well, you know the story there. For the time being, we're, we're no longer eligible for a UNESCO Global Geopark designation, but that doesn't mean we couldn't have a national Global Geopark Program if the communities were interested and willing. We also advise the USNC, the National Committee and National Academy on matters related to geologic heritage, and we represent U.S. interests in, on, on the global stage. And um, as Don said, I retired in 2008, but I do a lot of traveling, and a lot of my traveling is to, uh, uh, to meetings where we talk about global geoheritage and, and what role the U.S. may or may not have. Uh, in, a, in 10 days, I'm going down to Mexico. Um, the Mexicans, as you'll see, are very active in the global geoheritage environment. Uh, as are the Canadian colleagues, um, but it, it uh, uh, you know, Mexico is one of my favorite places in the world. I dislike intensely the kind of rhetoric that we're hearing now about our Mexican neighbors. So we're going down there, and, and the idea is to build a North American network involving Canada, United States, and Mexico, uh, focused on geoheritage interests. Uh, what is a global geopark? It's pretty simple. It's a single unified geographic area with landscapes of international geologic significance that are managed with the idea of protecting, educating, um, research in those environments, and also use of the resource for, in a sustainable, sustainable way. Um, this is a map showing the uh, distribution. You can see in, um, in the Western Pacific, uh, Japan, China have one major cluster. And then in Europe is the second major cluster. There are about 140 UNESCO Global Geoparks in the world. You see here in South America, we've got two. Mexico, the two uh, were just designated in 2018. And we now have three up in Canada. And of course, the United States, we have none. Next. Um, but we do have communities here in the United States that are very interested in this concept. Uh, four here, two are in Colorado. Uh, the Gold Belt Scenic Byway is the first one to step forward. This is based, uh, linked around the Florissant National Fossil Beds, but also geologic features at Florence. For example, many people aren't aware that the first producing oil well west of the Mississippi was in Florence, Colorado. 
and those oil wells in that oil field are still producing today. A second area is the Denver Basin, and we're sitting right in the midst of the Denver Basin. We'll talk a bit about it. The Keweenaw Peninsula and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, it's got two National Park Service anchor sites. And then the Appalachian Geopark in West Virginia. We've had very strong interest in West Virginia, despite that this is um, country of the, of the political persuasion that you wouldn't have thought would have been interested in this kind of development. But uh, next, please. So this is a book on the Gold Belt Scenic Byway. You can go online. You can download this book. It's a great book to take along if you're going to if you're going to drive down Cripple Creek to go to the casinos or something. Take this book along and um, take a look at the geology. Next, the Denver Basin. This is a map showing the Front Range. We're sitting right here in Golden right now, near uh, Table Mountain. Um, the Denver Basin is a collection of geological sites that really have a great geological storyline for those of us who live. In, in this part of the Denver Front Range. And of course, this is, this is the major geologic break in the continent of North America. To the east of us, we have the Great Plains all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. To the west of us, we go all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And the major geologic break in the continent is right here at the Rocky Mountain Front. And we're literally tens of meters from the faults that define that, that break. Next. The Kiwi Peninsula, P of... Uh, in, in Michigan. It's former copper country. Um, it includes two National Park Service anchor sites. A lot of interest up there because of the former, the, the mining heritage. Those mines are closed now. Um, economically, very, uh, very, um, a very poor area economically. Next, please. Uh, the Appalachian Geopark Project focuses around three counties in southern Appalachia or southern West Virginia. These are primarily coal mining country. And these coal mines are, of course, no longer active. And the, the, the folks in those communities are wondering, what can we do, highlighting the geologic heritage of this, of this coal mining area um, to develop this Appalachian Geopark project. New River Gorge is one of the major scenic features. It's a park service feature. So uh, there are other alternate designations which highlight um, geologic heritage. The National Heritage Areas and Scenic Byways. Next, please. Natural heritage areas are places where natural, cultural, and historic resources combine to basically tell an important story. And a lot of times those features are linked to the geology. And these are grassroots, community-driven activities. This, this is not a congressman or this is not the federal government or the state government coming in and telling the communities, you've got to develop an NHA. But the federal government has grants available. They have opportunities available to do this. Next, please. There are 49 NHAs around the country right now. There's three here in Colorado. Next, please. Um, there's the South Park National Heritage Area. For those of you who like driving down 285 to get to the, to the most beautiful part of the state of Colorado in the San Juans, you go right through South Park. And just as you're approaching Fair Play, there's some big new signage there uh, advertising the South Park National Heritage Area. Those of you who go up north of Fort Collins and go over Cameron Pass on Highway 14, that's the Cache Lapooter River Natural National Heritage Area. And then the third one is down in the San Luis Valley, the Sangre de Cristo National Heritage Area. I'd really advise you, go online if you're interested in learning more about NHAs. Next, please. Scenic byways are simply routes that connect the traveler to unique natural, scenic, historical, recreation, and other types of heritage. Um, and who, who try to give that area an identity. Next, please. 
In the United States, we've got uh, about 70 scenic byways. These are ones you can see here in Colorado. We've got about uh, 11 or 12 right now. Next, please. Um, and natural qualities in those scenic byways um, include geologic features, fossils, landforms, and other features that are worthy of, of some level of identification or some level of protection. And uh, these are features that have minimal disturbance. Next, please. Right out here, right out, right, in fact, right going down Main Street here, we're sitting on the Lariat Loop. Lariat Loop is one of the national scenic byways that are here in the state of Colorado. Excuse me. Those of you who ride your bike up uh, um, the 40 Frontage Road, Lookout Mountain, you can, you'll see these Lariat Loop signs. They're, they're quite lovely. And here is the, the Lariat Loop. There's, the idea here is that through a set of signs, uh, they tie together the sort of the cultural, natural features of this area to give this Lariat Loop scenic byway an identity. And perhaps the best set of signs, if you go to the I-70 Morrison exit, go to the Woolly Mammoth parking lot right across from the gas station, there's a wonderful set of diorama, or not dioramas, but displays there explaining the Lariat Loop and what it's all about. Next, please. So going back to geological heritage is personal, this is, this, is the, this is the sort of the end of the talk, and this is where I'm going to get more personal with you about my interest here in Colorado and things that I think are, are, are really important and worth preserving. Next, please. Um, first of all, I really like volcanic rocks, if you, you've heard that before. This is a map of the state of Colorado, and every place shown here in red, these are rocks, volcanic rocks, that are younger than 65 million years. Okay? So they're very young volcanic rocks. Uh, the youngest volcano in Colorado is where? Dot Cerro. Gentlemen, he gets a free glass of water, I guess. <laughs> I think they closed the, I guess they closed the bar. But Dot Cerro, about 4,000 years old. Dot Cerro is right on I-70. Uh, all of us who go back and forth to Grand Junction or to the head of, of Glenwood Canyon, if you look off to the right, look to the north side of the highway as you're going west, You'll see the small volcano there. It's in a small quarry. Um, and a lot of the uh, dimension stone or ornamental stone that we get here in the front range, uh, the cinders and stuff come from the Dotsero little volcanic area there. And Dotsero is going to be located somewhere right about there. Okay. But this feature here, this big footprint, is what we call the San Juan volcanic field. And as Don said at the start, this is where I've done a lot of my geology right here in the Silverton area, the Silverton, you're right, tell you right area. It's called the San Juan Triangle. It's one of the, one of the wealthiest uh, areas of the state in terms of mineral production. Gold, silver, lead, zinc, copper. Uh, today there's really no significant active mining going on in the San Juans. There's a couple hobby mines or boutique mines, um, not to be detrimental about it, but it's, it's very difficult in this day in the state of Colorado now to open up a metal mine. Um, the environmental laws are, are and, and the requirements are pretty strict. Next, please. But the San Juan Volcanic Field, I'm sure a number of you have been there, and those of you who haven't been there should go tomorrow. Um, but it's, it's, it's one of the largest volcanic fields in North America. It's been extremely well studied by scientists from the state, from universities, and from the uh, U.S. Geological Survey, including Don Sweetkind and, um, and, and other of our colleagues. But these are some of the panoramas. This is from Conejos Peak. Conejos Peak is the tallest peak in the eastern San Juans. It's also a really interesting area because it's the last remaining 
uh, we think, habitat for the grizzly bear in the state of Colorado. And it's pretty controversial. They think in 1972 they saw a grizzly here. Um, there's been a number of projects. There's several books that you can read about grizzlies. But this is the grizzly bear habitat. Next, please. Um, one of the main features in the San Juans is that it's a site of very large volcanic craters. And large volcanic craters we call calderas. And the largest caldera that we know about on the face of the earth, at least for the last 65 million years, is called the Lagarita caldera. And it's smack in the middle of um, the uh, San Juans. Here's the town site of Creed. And if you go over here, you've got the town site of South Fork. If you go over here, over Slumgullion Pass, you get to Lake City. Silverton and Uray are over in this side. But this is a remarkably large and important geologic structure because the largest volcanic unit with a volume of more than 5,000 cubic kilometers was produced from eruptions of the Lagarita Caldera. And those of us who worry about large volcanic eruptions, um, this has what we call a volcano explosivity index, a VEI. It's the only one getting up to the nine range. This would be like having an earthquake um, of, of ma a Richter magnitude nine. They're extremely rare. We had three in the 20th century. We've had one so far in the 21st century. So this is a big deal. Next, please. And uh, if you want to hike around there, there's a beautiful pass. There's, this, this is a part of the state. You know, we, we, we have a lot of visitors coming to the state of Colorado now. But for some reason, it seems to me they all tend to stay in the same few areas. And if you want to go and really experience wilderness in the state of Colorado and be out there completely by yourself, go to the San Juan Mountains, or don't go, as, as the case may be. But this is the view from Half Moon Pass. Half Moon Pass associates Creed going over basically to Grand Junction or up to Monarch Pass. And uh, you're looking right into the Lagarita Caldera. This is Lagarita uh, uh, Peak, a 14er. Next, please. And one of the amazing things about this particular eruption is that as you leave South Fork going up to Wolf Creek Pass ski area, you go by uh, a, a beautiful suite of rocks here and a suite of rocks here, and all of us can see, looking at this photograph, that there's something that geologists call the contact. This is the place where two different geological units meet. And this contact's particularly cool because it's the base of the largest volcanic eruption that we know about on Earth. Right here in our own backyard, right here in Colorado. And uh, this is my colleague, Rick Trujillo. We were skiing one day, and we, we drove back up from Wolf Creek Pass, and we saw this, and I said, Rick. I mean, we knew the contact was there, but it's, uh, a lot of times the sun doesn't shine on this particular contact. So anyway, you've seen it. Next time you go to South Fork, it's about three miles out of South Fork as you're walking, hiking, riding your bike, or driving, uh, stop and take a look at it. It's pretty cool. Next, please. And then the final sort of the piece de resistance, and this gets back to geoheritage in the state of Colorado. In 1905, uh, for some reason, uh, the U.S. Forest Service recognized the aesthetic value of a small postage stamp area just east of Creed, Colorado. And it must have been on the Wheeler Ranch because they identified this and they called it the Wheeler Volcanic Monument. This is 1905, okay? And it's a bit hard to get to, 
It's, uh, these, are, these are rocks from the Lagarita Caldera, or very close by to the Lagarita Caldera. And it's, it's a spectacular scenic area. You've, it's it's uh, 14 miles in by a, by a jeep track, a pretty rough road. And then you can drive literally to the edge of the um, uh, San Juan wilderness area. And then you can walk in a couple miles, and you're right there in the Wheeler Volcanic Monument. Well, in terms of geologic heritage, this, this site's key because in 1951, this site was removed or decommissioned as a volcanic monument. And going back, and you know, I've, I've tried to research this in the forest. It's a, it was a Forest Service managed site. And uh, it's, very, it's not clear why they withdrew this from protection as the Wheeler Volcanic Monument. But in terms of protected volcanic landscapes here in the United States, this is a pretty key one. And uh, those of you who are interested in visiting it, I would highly urge you to do it. It's quite spectacular. You can literally camp anywhere you want in here because it's in a wilderness area. But uh, for me, these are the things that are important about ge ge the geologic heritage or the geology here in Colorado that, to me, sort of uh, beg for or require some level of attention or conservation or protection. Um, I'm not sure what your political persuasions are. I think you know what mine are. And I, I think it is valuable for us. These are our public lands. These are things that we all will be able to pass down to our children and grandchildren. And that, we, that, that we're, being, we're being asked to kind of look after these on behalf of, of the global patrimony or the world heritage, if you will. Next, please. So um, uh, going back one final slide to Silverton. Again, geoheritage. This is, this is the old 100 gold mine tour. If you ever go to Silverton and take your kids or grandkids, I can tell you kids really love this tour. Even adults and geologists love this tour. It's only about $10 but, uh, to get in. But the old 100 was one of the most famous mines, a gold, silver, lead, zinc, copper mine in the Silverton area. And it closed in the late 1960s. Uh, but the miners got together and they leased the claim, they leased the mine back, and they uh, fixed it up, so they now give underground mine tours so that visitors to Silverton, if you don't want to ride your ATV or if you don't want to you know, go to the distillery or whatever else you do in Silverton, if you want to go and really try to understand what brought people to Silverton in 1859, why is Silverton there? Well, it's all about the mining heritage and the geoheritage of the Silverton area. So thank you guys very much for listening. Appreciate it. Thanks, please. You can take it. All right. We're going to take just a quick break. If you need a drink or you need to run to the restroom, and we're going to come back in about four minutes to do some Q&A so that we can close up on time. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Welcome back. In case you have, does anyone here? Hey, Karen. Will you just take that fork and tap that glass? Thank you, Don. Just in case some folks have some questions, I want to give uh, Tom a couple chances to answer some questions before we close. So if you do have a question, please raise your hand. And if you don't mind, Tom, um, repeating the sure, question. Sure, absolutely. Thanks. Yep.
Uh, question. Do to back up with UNESCO. Well, we've withdrawn from UNESCO in the past. Um, back in '82, uh, President Reagan took us out of UNESCO. In 2003, um, President Bush put us back in UNESCO. So um, my guess is that in the future, we will get back in. Will it be another 20-year hiatus? I don't know. Yes. Right. Okay. Uh, let me let me take a, uh, the question had to do with um, from a global perspective. What's the world? What's the global volcanic threat? Um, you pointed out the United States recently. The USGS recently published a report. Um, uh, it was called the Enviews Report. N V E W S. It's an acronym, and it's the National Volcanic Early Warning System um, recommendations. And in order to recommend where to put monitoring, we had to evaluate the activity at all 169 historically active U.S. volcanoes. And out of that, we've got uh, an A list, a B list, a C list, et cetera. And on that A list, you're right that Mount St. Helens, uh, Mount Rainier, Hawaii volcanoes, these are some of the volcanoes in the A list. And so every year from Congress, the USGS gets about $24 million that we invest in monitoring volcanoes in the United States. So that's the 169 in the United States, okay? Let's take a global perspective. We have about 550 historically active volcanoes around the world. Most of these volcanoes are around the Circum-Pacific Ring of Fire. They start in southern Chile, they go up through Central America, they go up through the United States, Alaska, over into Kamchatka, eastern Russia, down to Japan, over into Korean Peninsula, down to the Philippines, down to Indonesia, and then down to New Zealand. And that's the bulk of the remaining bad actor volcanoes, or really dangerous volcanoes. And in those, the International Association of Volcanology, the IAVSA, this is sort of the trade union, if you're a volcano scientist, you belong to these associations, and ours is called IAVSA, International Association of Volcanology. And so IAVSA has also ranked volcanoes at a global scale. And geologically, the country with the most volcanoes is Indonesia. And uh, the, the incident you're talking about was at Christmas Eve, small eruption of Krakatoa, which is a small volcano between 
Sumatra, and West Java in the Sunda Strait there had a small eruption, but there was also a landslide. And that landslide came down and caused a small tidal wave, which went up onto the shores of West Java. And um, certainly, we don't think of tsunamis as typically being a volcanic hazard, per se. But there was a small eruption, and there was a failure of the slope, like the failure of the slope at Mount St. Helens in 1980. So if you look around the world, we've got, um, I'll try to remember the top 10 from off the top of my head. Um, and in New Zealand, it's Ruapehu Tongariro. In the Philippines, it's my own volcano near Legaspi City. Um, in Indonesia, there's several. There's Krakatoa. There's Agung on the island of Bali, which has been active now for quite a while on, in eastern Bali. There's Rinjani Volcano on the island of Lombok. Um, going up into Japan, you've, you've got two or three volcanoes, Usu, Aso, Sakurajima. Um, you've got some volcanoes up in the Kuriles and up into Kamchatka. Um, and yeah, and, and so we do have a sense of, of where the bad actors, where the bad volcanoes are in the world. The, 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 the interesting thing is of those 550 historically active volcanoes, only one-third of them are under any kind of continuous monitoring or surveillance, including some here in the United States that are not monitored. For example, outside of Seattle is a beautiful volcano called Glacier Peak. Glacier Peak sits in a wilderness area. And because it's a wilderness area, even the U.S. Geological Survey is prohibited from putting mechanical monitoring devices into the wilderness area. So that's, that's, a, that's an example of a, of a problem that we have to deal with in the United States. But 550 historically active volcanoes, one-third of them are monitored going around the world. And uh, so, yeah, earth scientists, volcanologists still have a lot of work to do. Uh, please. Um, statistically, what are the chances in the next 20 to 30 years that volcanoes could slow down global warming? Um, in the 20th century, we had three big eruptions, three really big eruptions. We had Katmai in Alaska, April 1912. We had um, Mount St. Helens, it wasn't a big one. It was big to us, but it, it wasn't big. And we had uh, Pinatubo in 1991, and we had a volcano in, on the Chile-Argentine border called Kizapu in 1932. Each of these eruptions, um, the, the, the one that was best instrumented was Pinatubo, 1991, because we had satellites. We were able to measure atmospheric temperatures using satellites and ground-based stations. Okay. And we know that there was a slight cooling after those eruptions. And that's because a lot of volcanic debris, dust, ash, gas, are put into the atmosphere. And that debris absorbs incoming solar radiation. So not as much solar radiation gets to the ground surface. So there's a cooling effect. 1815, big eruption in Indonesia. 1816 in Europe was called the year without a summer. And because they had massive crop failures, massive famine in, in Western Europe because of that. And so volcanoes, even large, large eruptions, may affect cooling, or they, they may promote cooling for, I'll say, one to three years. Pinatubo, there was measurable cooling for, for, for maybe three years. But it wasn't very evenly distributed. 
because the ash doesn't get evenly distributed. And if you're a northern hemisphere eruption, that ash and debris stays in the northern hemisphere. There's a northern hemisphere effect. Same if you're in the southern hemisphere. If you're, if you're an equatorial eruption, like El Chichon in Mexico in 1982, that ash can get into the northern hemisphere and into the southern hemisphere because of the global circulation patterns. So to answer your question, I don't think we're going to, I don't think that's the answer to, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, this gentleman. Right. And there's a second one here, which is the uh, Trail Workers Guide to uh, Dinosaur Ridge and the surrounding area. Ah. And so it has geologic, not only has a geologic map, if you really want all the very details, <laughs> but, it, but it shows you along the hiking trails where to stop and what geologic and ecologic features you see. Sure. I would think that would be ideal for the geoheritage site. Great. Well, the gentleman's question had to do with guidebooks. Uh, he referred to the Gold Belt Scenic Byway guidebook, which you can go online and download. And maybe if you hit the jackpot at Cripple Creek, you can go into the bookstore and buy one there if they have a bookstore in Cripple Creek. But I think one of the things you're demonstrating, and I'm guessing you're a little younger than I am, but many of us in this room still like books. What you find out when you go to Asia or to Europe or other places is, you know what, a lot of this stuff is available through social media outlets or it's available online. And the concept of taking a book to the field, I take books to the field and I take maps, I take paper maps to the field. Uh, but a lot of my colleagues today, you know, they've got, their, they've got their iPhones or their iPads and that's the source of their information. So it's a great question and I think the answer needs to be it needs to be both we need to have uh, books that are available to people that get their information through books we also need to have we definitely need to have a social media presence and uh, I'll tell you a quick story none of us on that US advisory group Terry Cook is going to have her 50th birthday next month and she's the youngest person on that She's the one that wrote the book on geology underfoot here in the Front Range. And she's really the most clever and the most uh, current with social media. She understands that for her to get the message out about the earth sciences, uh, first of all, it has to be in layman's language. That's a really important point you made. And second of all, it has to be accessible in the form that the audience that wants to use it is going to use it. Okay? Uh, I do a lot of bicycle touring. I was up in the Olympics last August. And we shared a campsite with some young uh, millennial cyclists. And uh, there were four of us. We sat at a picnic table. We pulled out our maps. And the millennial guys came over and said, geez, what's that? What is I said, well, that's a map. And I said, how do you guys do it? And they pulled out their iPhones. And they showed us they've got all these apps now for cycle touring. And, and, but but what you, you always see a postage stamp. 
Sure. Yeah, no, it's it's a great point. And it is a dilemma and there was a this lady here made the comment during the break about the importance of geoeducation. I took out a set of slides about working with the state geological surveys. Every state in the United States has a state geological survey. Colorado has a great one. Their headquarters are literally right up here on 19th Street going up Lookout Mountain. And each of them have as part of their remit or their charter to uh, provide educational information materials for K through 12 for the for the for the public to be educated. And uh, but of the 50 states, they're all using different approaches. It's 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 very rich in terms of the diversity of approaches. And, and as a consequence, I don't think the message is getting out that state geological surveys have good stuff to offer us about the earth science resources in our state. Yeah. Oh, we got to close. Drink up your beer. Thanks. <laughs>